Welcome to Blockchain for the Billions, where we explore the Web3 landscape and the hotspots of mainstream adoption. Let's get into it. Hey guys, welcome to Blockchain for the Billions. We're so excited to have you here today. In this conversation, we're really going to dive into the dynamic relationship we think Gen Z has with the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain. You guys are all at various universities and have some understanding on this, but the goal is really just to let today be a conversation to gain your insights on what the future of blockchain and crypto looks like and how Gen Z is adopting it. So to kick us off, can each of you just introduce yourself, maybe tell us where do you go to school and what you're studying? Yeah, I can go ahead and start. My name is Will Lawson. I know by what the hoodie says, I actually go to U of I. I'm a fourth year senior studying information science. So this is my last year, last semester. Super glad to be here though. Nicholas, how about you? Yeah. Hey, everyone. My name is Nicholas Harness. Uh, I'm on my third year at U of I as well, uh, and I'm, I'm studying uh, econ and history. Oh, and uh, I guess I can jump on. My name is Nam. I'm a junior from Vietnam at uh, Northwestern University. I'm currently doing economics, a minor in business and entrepreneurship. I'm just so happy to be on here. Thank you for having us. Yes. So excited to kick this off. To get started, why don't each of you, maybe we can just start here. What are your thoughts on, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency and how familiar are you with these concepts? And I guess to take it a step further, you know, like have these concepts come up in your classes yet or are you familiar through them because of your own research? Yeah, I guess on our end, I am, for example, one of the guys behind College Dow and uh, what was formerly UBA. So with that, our focus is very much on the university space, on kind of helping students. Uh, and so over the last year, we've been working a lot with universities to essentially get courses off the ground for Web3, blockchain, crypto, anything within that sphere. We've been reached out to by you know, some of the largest universities in the world uh, and then also a lot of smaller universities. So there is a lot of excitement across the board at universities to kind of get into things like this. But unfortunately for most universities, it seems like they haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, they're still kind of you know, working on that type of thing, trying to get courses up and running off the ground. But as of right now, there's really only a few universities that have things like that. I know, for example, Berkeley has a, a few courses. Some of the British schools have a, a few courses. Um, and the uh, University of uh, Noikasia in Cyprus, uh, it has uh, a couple of, I think it has a whole like major blockchain that they put together with Coinbase. Interesting. Yeah, it's cool to see big companies like Coinbase getting involved here. Nam, you're at a different university, so maybe tell us a little bit about your thoughts on blockchain and crypto and you know how familiar you've been with these concepts. Yeah, of course. At Northwestern, I wouldn't say we have the same level of you know, student involvement in blockchain as much as you do at UIUC. I would love for Northwestern to be able to be a part of you know, your college style. We have a blockchain club, but they're quite small at the moment, and I would love for them to be able to grow. As for classes, I would say we don't have too many classes on blockchain. We have a lot of cool classes, but most of them are like very high-level CS classes. So it's not very accessible for every student. Uh, and then in terms of familiar, I've been involved with blockchain for the past three years. I've been building several protocols for the last two years. I just think this is such a cool tech. There's some bad actors that make it look bad. But you know, overall, like the world of Web3 is, is such a wholesome world. That's awesome. And so cool that you've been building your own protocol. So we'll have to dive into that later. Will, is there anything that you'd add kind of to this? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, alongside what Nicholas said with blockchains being um, really the only presence that I've seen here at U of I has primarily been within the clubs. But other than that, I'll be honest, I don't see much blockchain involvement or events going on at the university. And that's really because I think the, the primary or most profound view of what blockchain is right now is that it's confusing. And then crypto is sketchy. So when you combine those two things, it often becomes the case that this entire industry is either feared or rejected. And that's simply because folks don't know. And when they try to know, there's too many barriers to for, for kind of entry. Interesting. So do you think, as a follow-up question, amongst your peers, like your friends or, you know, your, your classmates, what is the general belief then? Do, how do they perceive blockchain? Is it that it's confusing? Is crypto that it's sketchy? Or maybe, Will, you could talk to me a little bit about this and then Nam and Nicholas, we can see if your peers differ. Yeah, it's exactly what you just said, Lauren. It's confusing, it's sketchy. And it's often the case that when you don't understand something, you tend to reject it. Yeah, you tend to fear that thing even. And so that's what we've seen, not just in the university space, but I mean, in the broader sector of like the world, blockchain is rejected despite it being so useful in so many different use cases. Yeah, it's interesting because a tidbit here, I think, is that people think blockchain is crypto and Web3 is crypto. And as we all know, crypto is a use case for blockchain technology, one of many. There's amazing, amazing use cases in supply chain and how we socially connect and coordinate and so many more use cases of blockchain. But I think, like you said, there's a misconception here that blockchain and crypto are the same thing. So Nam and Nicholas, what is the belief amongst your friends and your peers? I can start. I think it's very similar to what Will said, because you know, blockchain, crypto, Web3, like all these buzzwords, it's like at a time, it was so complex for a lot of people. And especially, you know, after 2021, like late, mid-2022, people were even like more skeptical towards crypto. I just feel like if there's a tool or like easy ways, such as like Coinbase or Binance is like easy classes for people to have more access to crypto, to have a better understanding of what it is, or like a better understanding of like what the blockchain technology is. It would, you know, people would remove like these psychological barriers towards the blockchain technology. And the same case was for my friends. Like at first they, like after all that happened with crypto, they would always be, oh, oh my God, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to be scammed out of all my money. But once I told them, okay, like that's just one angle that you're looking at it. There's so much more to it and show them a couple of the very useful use cases they're like, oh, wow, I completely missed out on what it actually is. A lot of it is about like, like how you're able to look at it and if there's any way that's more easy to access it. Very important. We need a lot more education around it, I think, to your point. Nicholas, is there anything else that you would add? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. The other day, uh, actually just yesterday in one of my classes, one of our professors asked the students, you know, who's someone who you respect? who you think is doing a lot of good for the world. Uh, and the first person that spoke up said, Jamie Dimon. I thought that was a little funny. And she asked why. And he said, you know, he's taking a stand against Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you know, telling the world how it's all just a bunch of fraud and can only be used for crimes. That's the only value of it. Uh, so after class, I went over to the guy and I started talking to him and I, I told him, you know, what is it about all that uh, that you don't like uh, and that you're kind of concerned with? And he said, its only use is money laundering. 
Uh, and anyone who's involved with money laundering should be shut down immediately by the government. I told him, well, do you know that Jamie Dimon has the single largest fine in U.S. history for aiding and abetting money laundering within his bank? And he did not know that. He thought that was interesting. And that kind of made him reconsider. Um, that kind of opened the doors for me to explain to him, you know, there are a lot of use cases outside of crypto and explain to him what exactly crypto really is. Um, so I think we need more of that on campuses because I've noticed the vast majority of people here at the universities and probably around the world, their understanding of this space is mostly shaped by the media narrative on kind of what they hear on the news. On the news, is not usually that uh, friendly towards it, just because at the end of the day, crypto is a threat to the banking system. And the banking systems pay for a lot of ads uh, on TV. They have a lot of influence within the media. Some of the banks outright own some of the media companies. So they're getting a, a biased take uh, from a lot of these people. You don't often see them having people on, uh, but it is refreshing now to see that people like Michael Saylor uh, and, and Corey from Swan are starting to get a, a platform uh, on some of these media channels to kind of share their side of the story on uh, there. They're opening it up uh, to be a, a little bit more of a debate instead of being one-sided. So I think that's uh, good. And overall, hopefully that has a more positive impact uh, here at the university level. In terms of when you have these conversations with your friends, it sounds like all three of you have had this conversation with your friends where you're trying to explain to them what blockchain is, what Web3 is, how it's a fundamental technology change not just a currency, not just used for bad actors. How receptive are people? Do you think that Gen Z as a generation is receptive to learning and changing their opinions? You know, you guys are the digital native generation, they say. Big in gaming, big in valuing digital assets, sometimes more than physical assets, really focused on your digital identity over your physical identity. So these are some like data points we have around Gen Z as a generation so I'm curious, when it comes to being open-minded and learning more about these technologies, how um, that's received amongst your peers? Yeah, I would say at the end of the day, most students are pretty open to it. Uh, if you can get them the right intro, there's a lot of interest around it. And that fluctuates depending on the, the kind of hype cycle or you know what's going on in the space. But with the, uh, the ETF situation, there's a lot more people interested. It certainly helped recruiting here for the, uh, the spring semester at U of I. We've just got a lot of people interested, but overall, I, I would say students, they just want to know more. Uh, and I, I think at the end of the day, that's what College Dow is hoping to provide across the university landscape for the hundreds of universities that we're working with is you know, provide a robust, uh, well-equipped club on these campuses who can basically connect with the students who have questions, want to learn more, and uh, help them to you know, get their questions answered, dive deeper into the space. Um, and figure out what exactly it is that they want to do or learn about and how they can benefit from this technology. Would either of you add anything else, Will? Yeah. To expand on that point, Nicholas, I agree and I disagree. Because what I'd say is inquisitive students definitely absolutely are open to the idea of learning. And I mean, like you said, these are people who just like to learn, period. So anything new, anything interesting, they'll go for but I'll say for the rest of the college population, those who are a bit less inquisitive, less uh, willing to take initiative on things like that, what I found is that they are more influenced by the people they deem as cool. And so when they initially have no interest on anything blockchain, anything crypto related, they still have this perception kind of blinding any willingness to open their heart or their ears to 
understand what crypto is or what blockchain is. But now, once you see somebody like, okay, for example, this movie just came out, Lyft, on Netflix with Kevin Hart, and it was talking about NFTs. Obviously, Kevin Hart is one of the biggest stars in the world. And for NFTs to play such a huge part within that movie, now people are like, I've, I've literally gotten messages. Hey, she will. Can you tell me about this NFT thing? I just saw it in a movie. What, what does that mean? So what I found is that, I mean, candidly, we're a sheepish generation at times. And there's certain subsets of our generation that will follow the latest influencer or the person who is deemed cool or has, again, influence. So it's a matter of targeting these people and really educating them so that way they can begin to use their influence and push the real narrative into the marketplace. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we keep touching on the same point. That's education, but also in a way where, you know, there's a term in Web3 called DYOR, do your own research. But, you know, how do we create environments where the conversation is really open and people feel like they can ask questions and are curious to learn. And my biggest thing is, you know, how does the average consumer see why this technology actually will impact their life, will make their life better, easier, cheaper, faster? Because those are use cases that are sticky, right? I think there's nice to have use cases and then there's necessity use cases. Something I'm pretty bullish on is, you know, this idea that our digital lives and identities are going to continue to matter more and more as well, being able to prove ownership of digital assets. And right now people call them NFTs, but call them collectibles, call them the stars in your Starbucks app. Like, damn, if I have stars for a free coffee, I'm I'm sure as hell redeeming those, you know? And it's like, these are digital things we place value on. So maybe talk to me, each of you, how uh, blockchain and crypto has impacted your daily life, if it has, how it's kind of change the way you think, change the way you spend, change how you interact with technology. Maybe Nam, kick us off because I know you're doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, of course. I jumped on this journey like three, two, two and a half, three years ago with crypto and it had completely changed my life. Let's start with something like a little outside of my life. I just heard this amazing story. I was talking to this guy who's a consultant at PwC. He was telling me about one of his uh, cases where he was consulting this like huge logistics firm. And what they did to him was they came to his room, they slammed like a very, very thick stack of paper and, and told him, boom, this very thick stack of paper is how much paper it is currently needing to transfer like a simple banana from Brazil to America, something like that. And his job was to, okay, like find a, we saw this blockchain technology, find a solution for us to do this. And, you know, just from that, like a consulting firm, he went on to give a solution to this company by making like their own chain that is currently has around like 200 million you know blocks already so you know something simple like that it could be you know it has so much use case but for my daily life i live with crypto i build protocols so i follow the market every day i see you know what people are doing i'm currently like i'm following a lot on arbitrum and solana i think the most useful thing that crypto has ever done for me was being able to buy you know, a lot of Starbucks gift cards. It's so easy just to be able to you know, <laughs> use any of your crypto to buy a gift card because like, you get double stars from that. And it's so much faster, so much more convenient than having to access my credit card online and, and go through all of that. It's yeah. So in a lot of ways, that's one of the best ways. But in a lot of ways, it's, the use of cryptos makes it so much easier. Yeah, that's interesting. As a follow-up, and maybe everyone, when they answer this question, do you actively like invest in crypto or buy crypto? Is that part of like your daily life? I trade. 
I buy a couple of NFTs here and there, but I only I only hold in the long term. I would figure out points where you know Bitcoin or ETH is at a good buying price, and I, I put you know, a couple of that in. Other than that, I don't do day trading. Yeah, uh, my full time job. Yeah. Well, at least for me, I don't think that's a very viable strategy. Um, so, so I think, yeah, the long-term holders, you know, for the win, always. That's awesome. Nicholas, well, what about you guys? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't really invest in uh, crypto or you know, anything like that myself. Uh, I have in the past, but no real interest on my end. Like, that's not why I got into it at the, the end of the day. Like, uh, I am an econ student, so I, I like the you know, currency aspect of it and think that's addressing one of the biggest problems in the world. But, you know, in, in terms of investing, that that's not really what I'm most interested in. I'm, I'm more so interested in the, the technology, the use cases, uh, and, and, you know, using that technology to, to leverage it to solve problems around the world and in different industries. Like, that's where my focus has always been. And so trading, buying crypto has you know, not really been a part of that. I mean, uh, again, I've done it in the past. When I go to like conferences, sometimes they'll they'll have things where you can go, you know, buy coffee with Bitcoin uh, or Ethereum or something, and I'll go do stuff like that. But outside of it, uh, I, I certainly don't use it too often myself. Interesting. Well, what about you? What does the interaction of blockchain and crypto kind of look like in your life? For me, at least in terms of investing, I have a bunch of DGEN friends, but I myself am not a DGEN. And that's Fair. because, Fair. so I've been in the space since 2017. Um, I first helped my mom buy a bit of Bitcoin and then Bitcoin crashed. And I took like a four-year hiatus and I'm not using crypto anymore. And then 2021 cycle came up. I was like, man, I guess there's money to be made. So we're back in the game. And each and every time I do something like that, I just find myself getting burned. So, I mean, similar to Nam, my thing is time in the market versus timing the market. And I just have some decent holdings in Solana and Ethereum, things like that. But definitely not the day trader. Now, as for like how blockchain and crypto has helped me in my daily life or even how I've interacted with it. So in 2022, it was the case that unfortunately I was the victim of theft. I lost over $6,000 in a wallet training attack. And really that's where my entire perspective on crypto shifted. You would think it would shift for the worst that I would now become this person who's like, oh, yep, everybody was right. Fraud is the main thing that takes place. This is only for criminals, stuff like that. But what clicked in that moment was, if this is to be a system that is to replace the traditional system and alternatives to that, then there has to be a way for someone to not be able to lose their life savings in an instant. And so that's what we're working on. Uh, I'm building a protocol that allows crypto businesses to recover stolen assets, even after being the victim of theft. And working on this startup, it's just in the case that it's opened the doors to so many opportunities, so many conversations. I've got to meet the coolest people. I mean, one of them being Nick. And then on top of that, I'll even say it's given me a purpose. It's definitely given me a purpose as to what responsibilities I now have. Yeah, I just say crypto is crypto is in place. Crypto is I definitely love, a place to be. I love your passion. I love your passion. Building your company, Will, I'll ask a follow-up question, you know. Has there been any times that you've changed your mind on something you believed or found some really new, unique insights because you're going through this process of being a founder and you've been in the space for so long? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing that comes to mind is this belief that everything needs to be decentralized. 
And there's a few beliefs that we hold in the crypto space. And I say we sparingly, because I don't think everybody really holds these beliefs, but we'll target decentralization specifically. Something like that, where you often hear, okay, everything needs to be decentralized. Every single system out there, if something is centralized, then that is the bug, not the feature. Right. And I find that to be odd because it's through centralization that we're able to make processes much more efficient, implement trust, which again, trust is something that's also seen as being a bug and not a feature. But if you take a step back and realize that this is an extreme, and instead we can kind of combine the two between centralization and decentralization, it actually makes for a more efficient system, one that accomplishes our tasks more often. So I'll explain. One thing that we're doing is we call ourselves having the extreme balance to where we're a combination of both centralization and decentralization. Uh, by being a centralized company, we have a decentralized group of jurors that make the decisions on whether or not fraud has occurred, or they ultimately determine whether or not fraud has occurred. And it's through this kind of a check and balance to the system where it's only through the consensus of this decentralized group of jurors that we're actually able to recover the function, recover the funds taking the assets out of the hacker's wallet, that's kind of distributing the power of decision-making amongst a group of people while still having everything be managed under a centralized node. And that way, it's the case where if somebody is the victim of fraud, then they can know they can come to resolve and be able to begin to mitigate that situation. Where otherwise, say we were in this super decentralized space, something like Bitcoin, for example. Now, if you're ever the victim of, of fraud, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to ask for help? How are you going to get your money back? That's not something that full decentralization of fully trustless system can resolve. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, congrats on what you're building. I can't wait to continue to learn more and follow your journey. Nam and Nicholas, in terms of perspectives on blockchain and crypto at your universities and maybe how your perspectives have shifted is there anything you'd add to Will's insights around, you know, the changing perspectives your generation and you and your peers have on this space? I can go. Just a little bit to add to Will's point. I really like your idea where I love decentralization, but like decentralization alone is not enough. I really like the idea of self-custody, but there has to be, you know, some kind of authority, some kind of centralization in there in order for, for the, the entire system to actually work. Not just my peers alone, but like the, the circle that I'm in, they're, they're starting to have some realization like that. It's like, okay, centralization, DeFi is really cool, but there, there has to be, you know, some protocols out there, like some kind of insurance protocol, like, or, or something like what you're building will like to help the system, like some kind to, to help implement some kind of safeguards into the system. Decentralization is good, but there also needs to be safety. There also needs to be convenience. So I think, you know, in terms of that, the perspective really, really changed over the last at least like two, three years. Nam, on the Northwestern campus, you mentioned you're a part of a blockchain club. Do you see any other blockchain related activities on campus or much interest outside of that? You said there's less classes. What does that look like? Yeah, so I think most of it is in the blockchain club. I'd say anything outside of that, it's just me pursuing my protocols <laughs> myself. I love it. I love it. Yeah, but other than that, it's quite rare. Like Northwestern, we're we're basically we we're pipeline to consultings. Yeah, <laughs> everyone like at school is is I'd say a lot of people are very risk averse because like frankly the opportunity cost is very large. 
and they're often like very, very focused people. So they said they don't stray out of new other zones and like blockchain. It's for like friends of mine, it's either get them on, but like for like the general public, it's like, it's just the blockchain club, just me doing my things. And outside of that, it's, it's hard to get like general people to join up. Got it. Interesting. You're going to have to keep rallying the troops, I guess. Nicholas, in terms of kind of unique perspectives you have on the space, is there anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess to kind of carry on the conversation with like decentralization versus centralization, there's pros and cons to both. You know, that's one of the big focuses at many of the blockchain like clubs and especially ours. As like there are a lot of students who are like, you know, why does this need to be decentralized? You know, why why couldn't we you know, do this thing? Because this would make it more efficient. I think it should depend on the user. I, I think eventually we'll get to the point where you'll have all of these different L1s, L2s, and you can kind of go to whichever one serves you in best capacity in the way that you want to utilize it. That I, I think having the kind of user choice um, in which you have the option to pick between different markets is a, a positive thing. And I think there there are you know obvious pros and cons to both. At the end of the day, the, the whole point of like Bitcoin itself and, and kind of the origin of crypto was the thought that the banks are 100% of the time stealing from us, uh, screwing us over. And so if we can take the power away from their hands and move it to a system in which, you know, now the chances basically that, you know, hey, if you, you know, mess up or do something, your wallet could get drained by a hacker. A lot of people viewed that as preferable to, you know, a guaranteed chance that a bank is going to screw you over, that you don't actually have control over your money. I think it's up to each individual to kind of make the decision as to whether or not that's the the right kind of path for them on whether or not that's something that they view there being an inherent advantage in. Yeah, interesting. And real quick on that point, Nick, I completely agree with you. I truly believe that it's going to be the case that blockchains aren't really going to be at the forefront of things, at least not overtly, but rather it's going to be something like Okay, right now with the internet, we have protocols like HTTPS, TCP, IMAP protocols. These are things that are there for securing communications, uh, transferring data and message pro- uh, data and message packets, stuff like that, right? But outside of this circle, nobody has any clue what they are. They probably haven't even heard of them. The only thing even remotely close to those concepts that they know are probably that little lock at the top of your, your browser. Yeah, these are the backbone of the internet. This is what allows me to go to Instagram.com. This is what allows me to go to Facebook or to message my grandma on WhatsApp. I think it'll be the same case where in the future, we're just going to be doing things yep. and we're not going to realize which blockchain is underneath. We're yep. just going to be able to do that. Yeah. We talk a lot about the car's engine right now, but at the end of the day, no one usually gives a shit. They want to figure out why the car makes them look cool, what the features are, what the gadgets are, right? Like why it makes their life better. I do agree, Will, that the future of blockchain will be less about the technology to the average consumer and more about the value add to their life. Taking a step back on the topic of, you know, we're talking about the engine of the car, we're talking about the complexities of blockchain and crypto. From each of your perspective, quickly, how much value do you place on digital assets? Are you interested in gaming? Like I'm not just talking about NFTs, but like Curious your concept on the value you place on digital items that are related to your name, your email, you own them, your email address is a good example. And 
the value place of on your digital identity versus your physical identity. Yeah, I'll, I'll say on that, uh, like in my opinion, and this may be a, an unpopular opinion, but uh, I think NFTs and like Web3 gaming as they currently exist and what they're kind of most commonly used for are just incredibly dumb and have effectively zero purpose uh, and don't really deliver any real value. Like the, the idea of I'm going to invest in the uh, the monkey picture and it's going to go up in value because the monkey picture is cool. You're welcome to do that, I guess. Like uh, there apparently is market there for that, for whatever reason. And I don't think that's a, a very good use of the technology or the time. Uh, I'd much rather see people utilizing NFTs to do things like ticketing or events or, uh, you know, verifying like authenticity for uh, like products, things like that. I, I met with uh, a guy, uh, a friend of mine who's working for like a commodities trading company and they're building using ERC-1155 like uh, kind of tokens to essentially digitalize uh, at least uh, on the blockchain commodities trading so that traders around the world can use that in a more fair, uh, you know, decentralized environment in which they don't have to worry about, you know, someone changing the rules or messing with things. And then it's just a more open and fair way to do it on uh, in their vision. That's the more ideal way to do it. So I think things like that and same thing with the, the Web3 gaming, like the, the Web3 gaming, it's basically just a, a glorified job. Uh, this is like my understanding how a lot of people tend to use it as like, you, know, you have this video game and you go to play it. And if you play it, you earn NFTs that you can sell for money. And it's like, there's not really any value for that. Like, it's just a bunch of people from developing countries who have an internet access or have taken out a loan so that they can play this game, earn the NFTs, and then sell them to people in Western countries who uh, have like bought into the hype. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's like basically just a pyramid structure for a lot of them like there there's not a lot of real value to jump in a little bit here talking less about you know nfts because we know it today but understanding like digital goods your email address if you were to lock out get locked out your instagram account your digital identity how you appear on the internet what are your thoughts on that and i think that that's kind of like the higher level question i'm curious about because you know as i mentioned before a lot of studies have shown that Gen Z and Gen Alpha care a lot about their digital identities and digital things. An example is they don't want the Fortnite skin or like they don't want the Louis Vuitton skin like in real life if they can't wear it in the game. I'm curious, feel free anyone to jump in here, just kind of your deeper thoughts on that. So interesting enough, I'm not one who tends to play video games. I'm also not one who is on social media a ton. So I may not have a ton of credibility in being able to answer this question. But I know from what I observe from the people around me, like my brother, for example, I'll see this kid, he's 14 years old, and he'll be playing on Roblox hours and hours and hours each day. Again, what's the currency in there? Uh, V-Bucks or Roblox? Ro- Roblox. Robux. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> he's trying to gain all this in-game currency. And then once he amasses all this currency, hit the top of the mountain, let's go. But then he moves to the next game and he's got to start all over again. You'll go to, I don't know, you have Fortnite, for example. And then they have a different currency, the, the V-Bucks. Now, this is something that has been talked about a ton in the space, the interoperability between in-game currencies, in-game skins, digital assets, stuff like this. But I think that's where the real use case would be, where my 14-year-old brother will be playing a game. 
And rather than when he switches to a new game, having to start all over and grind all those hours again, he's able to take the progress that he's made and transfer that to the other game. And that just doesn't go for the currency itself, but also the skins, the, I don't know, the friends that you might take and even applying it to something like social media. I know myself, I hate, hate creating profiles on all these different social medias. You got TikToks, the Instagrams, yeah. the our identity. Our identity is fragmented in different places across the internet, right? We're different exactly. with different followers, the different connections everywhere we go. There's kind of a dichotomy or a dilemma to be had in that issue or in that uh, equation. Because the easy answer is someone to say, all right, I'm just going to create a protocol to make all this interoperable. We can make WhatsApp connect with Instagram or Instagram connect with TikTok and just have all the platforms on there, right? But when you have 10, 15, 20 people having that idea, that same idea, then it becomes the case. I mean, it really doesn't solve the problem because now you have 10, 15, 20 different protocols. So if I'm being completely honest with you, I don't know what the solution is. Maybe it goes back to a level of centralization and authority that we do need. Because the thing about authority is when you realize you need it, it's easier to accept. When you realize say a neighborhood is dangerous inherently, then it's easier to have police come in and try and make that neighborhood more safe, right? By the same token, if you realize that the space right now is fragmented and the solution that we currently have is, okay, we have all these players create their own different protocols, which still wouldn't solve the real issue, that having a centralized authority there to just create the one protocol, the HTTPS of social media profiles, and we all stay by that standard, I think it's easier to accept when we look at it through that frame of lens. Interesting. Nam, what are your thoughts on the future of digital goods and you know digital identities? Real quick, I know everybody's going to start thinking I'm a centralization maxi. I'm not. <laughs> no, I think it's it's a good perspective to have. Not everyone that is building a blockchain feels like it decentralization to the max is the right perspective. So I appreciate it. Nam, would love to jump in on your thoughts. Yeah. So. I kind of have to, you know, be in the middle between you guys. I think the technology with like NFTs and gaming and how, how it's being used in the past, you know, there are certain use cases that are definitely you know, not sustainable at all. But I think they're like in terms of gaming, I'm a big gamer myself. So in terms of gaming, in the past, I think they've just missed out on the point. Like the point was not to make money while gaming. The point was to to game. So they just have to create like a system, like Will said, a system where it makes it easier for you, you know, to game at least across platforms or at least like across you know platforms as one single identity. But outside of that, I think the field is growing. There are like a lot of like firms are growing, a lot of chains growing that that caters to the specific need of like your your online identity itself. I think there was a time when Twitter also lets you use like uh, an NFT as your profile. I think that was pretty cool. But then in terms of the value of digital assets alone, I, I'm very, very bullish on the idea of RWAs, like real world assets. It's extremely cool that that the market is growing. And I'm sure you guys are aware of SDAI or like other like UFT bills products, like me being able to, to buy something like that as a Vietnamese in Vietnam was very, very awesome for me. And I think the market was growing. And I think real world assets is going to be something that is going to be here to stay. As we uh, close out the episode, I have one closing question for each of you, and it's twofold. So I would love if you could share, you know, 
what your predictions and how you envision the future of blockchain and cryptocurrency to develop, as well as maybe how this technology has shaped how you're thinking about your career and your future. I can probably start. So in terms, I it is my life. <laughs> Basically, now it is my life. I've fully committed. I, I took like a like month long or like quarter long like thinking process of choosing between, oh, do I want to go into consulting or do I want to keep building things? And I just came to the realization that, yeah, I would not be happy like if I'm doing anything else. So like for like this summer like and, and then the, the rest of my student career, I would be building and then even after that. So crypto has really given me a really, really good opportunity not just like in terms of my my career, like my work life, in, in terms of my social life, like crypto and Web3, the people I make like going to Web3 events, like the friends that I made are the most wholesome people ever. I actually went to, there was this event in uh, San Francisco. I'm not sure if you guys heard, there's this place called the House of Web3. And the people who go there, the friends that you make, it was the most wholesome group of people. Everyone is so open. Blockchain has changed my life for the better both in terms of work and in terms of you know, personal life. So I'm here to stay. That's amazing. Will or Nicholas, how has blockchain shaped your career and what are your predictions for the future? Yeah, similar to Nam, it's the case that blockchain and crypto have become my life too. That's mainly because of the startup. Building in this space, you have to be immersed in the, the entire industry and the market. So for me, I, I, this is a personal decision that I've made. I'm not looking to get a job, traditional job at least, after college, and I'll continue pursuing this startup. That's where the career aspect of this is looking. As for predictions, we touched on this a bunch, but I really think that blockchain is going to be an implicit part of our lives, but it's going to have significant impact. It won't be this thing that's always overtly talked about, but it will drive a lot of the processes and, and functions that we do in our regular daily lives. Now, one thing I'd implore people to do in this space, because what we'll notice is that crypto um, and the blockchain industry is majority engineers. I'd implore people, these engineers, to undertake this exercise where you find one of your most smartest marketing friends, but they know nothing about crypto. Okay? They know nothing about blockchain. And you try and explain it to them. You explain to them whatever concept may be deemed as confusing or what people may fear at the current moment and whatever analogy they come up with, whatever little examples that they use, that's what you begin to use to explain that thing. Because I think doing it like that and speaking in the language of the audience that we one day want to capture is the way to go about diminishing the, the barrier that is comprehensibility of this entire industry. Blockchain does continue to need a rebrand and we need more marketers and storytellers and narrative experts in this space to help people understand it. I completely agree. Nicholas, how about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely agree with Will. Like we, we need more business people and more marketers to come into the space. We have an overwhelming amount of talented engineers. Uh, but at the end of the day, I am tired of, you know, going on to any like that and, and seeing and the, the UI and how complicated it is and being like, okay, I don't understand any of this. Uh, and it's like, you know, I, I've been involved in this space since 2016. I should be able to figure this out. Uh, but unfortunately, I think our engineers are uh, a little bit too complicated uh, and, and talented with, you know, the, the complexity they're able to deal with. 
but they're not always able to look at it from the perspective of, okay, yeah, I can use this and I understand how it works. How feasible is it for someone who's new to this to figure any of this stuff out? So I think that's one of the most integral issues. And I think we'll, we'll get more of that as we go on. Uh, I know I've started seeing more teams that are like a, an even mix of engineers uh, and like business, marketing, uh, econ, uh, and other kind of complementing majors uh, that can really help on that aspect. Uh, and so I think that's going to be very important as we move forward. And I mean, uh, my main prediction, I guess, with the space as a whole is as we move forward, we'll, we'll get more and more options. There will be kind of more available for people to, to choose from at the end of the day. Like I, I think interoperability will become kind of the, the main facet that everyone wants to kind of move towards. And I know certainly I, I've been working on that on my end with some of the projects we're doing now. You know, working with all the L1 foundations and all the VCs to essentially get everyone on board uh, and work towards building a more unified Web3. Because uh, at the end of the day, we look at where the space is now. Um, it's where the internet was in its early days when you had all of these different internets. Uh, and it's like you can't send an email to your friend because you and your friend are on a different internet. Or you can't watch uh, you know, the video or view the website they sent you because it's on a different internet. Uh, and that was frustrating for people on the internet. And it very quickly became obvious that, hey, we need to address that, make sure that all of this is connected. Um, so they built the World Wide Web. I think that's you know what we need to do. And you know that's what we're working on at Unichain is to is essentially build that out for the space. Uh, and for the most part, people are pretty understanding of like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that, that's pretty much the obvious move forward. Uh, is like at some point you need to be able to be on Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, Cosmos, whatever, uh, but be able to interact with people on the, the different chains. They can't just stay these separate islands. I think it's a disservice to users to make that a kind of permanent feature. It's very restricting, in my opinion. So that that's kind of my thought. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for your time today. It has been my pleasure having you on and your futures are so bright. I can't wait to see everything you all do in this space. Thank you for tuning in to Blockchain for the Billions. If you found this episode valuable, please consider sharing it with someone who could benefit or give it a shout out on your social platforms. To stay updated on the latest insights from Decasonic, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find in the show notes. Thank you for your support. Chat in the next episode.